This is a test of the Boundary Park Alert System. Welcome to episode 22 now of the Boundary Park Alert System with me, Matt Dean, and I'm joined this week by Andy Halliwell, who over the last number of weeks has been helping me furiously like the duck legs underneath a duck uh, behind the podcast, behind the scenes or under the water, uh, really helping me out with a, a lot of research and prepping and planning um, and he's even jumped in this week with an interview. So, Andy, welcome this week. Hello. How are you Hello, doing? mate. How are you? So, you've been busy. Right. You've been busy, yeah. like helping me out with the podcast, and it's been great. I really appreciate well, you've, it. Well, you've kept me busy, haven't you? Oh, yeah, I have, yeah. But you've been very keen to uh, very keen to get stuck in, and 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 you know, it's been it's been brilliant for me, and hopefully, it's going to be brilliant for the podcast as a whole going forward. And as it transpired, um, you arranged an interview, or is it Steve who arranged an interview for us with Ashley from the Football Sports Association? And I wasn't able, because of work, to do that interview. So you did. Yeah, I stepped in, probably uh, not quite as competently as you. But Obviously not, still, Andy, but I've listened to it and it wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it's really good. And and what we're going to do this week is we're going to play that interview and we're going to then have a quick chat at the end about that interview. Yeah. So please forgive us. The recording of it isn't brilliant. Ashley's microphone wasn't the best and it's a little bit distorted. So apologies for that. I blame Andy and he recorded <laughs> this one. Uh, no, no, it's just one of those things, isn't it? Um, not much we can do about it. We're not in, sat in a recording studio when we do these when we do these interviews. So we're at the mercy of the technology. But... The content's really, really good. I really enjoyed the interview, Andy. So uh, let's have a listen to it, and we'll come back after this. Did it? Did it? Did it? Did it? I'd like to welcome Ashley Brown to the Boundary Park Alert System podcast. Ashley is, if I get this right, Ashley, correct me if I'm wrong, head of governance, crisis club support, and club liaison at the FSA. Would you mind telling us a little bit about who the FSA are, what you do? Uh, how you exist and what your journey is uh, to get to that position. Yeah, so we are um, the only real national supporters organisation in the country. We are lucky to be fairly significantly resourced compared to a a number of other national organisations around the world um, due to the funding we get, which means we're able to do quite a wide range of areas of work that impact football supporters in the country. So we have an area working specifically around inclusion and diversity that does a lot of work with um, diversity supporter groups around the country, lots of different projects we do there. In normal times when people are going to actually go into football matches, we do a lot of casework support. So if somebody has been wrongly ejected or manhandled by a steward, or perhaps has some sort of legal ticketing issue, we provide support there and also have links in with certain lawyers that can provide legal assistance in that area as well. We work with the England national team at the away games. We run the fan embassies for all England away games. We work across the whole football pyramid. So we have network managers working in the Premier League, Championship, League One and League Two. Also in the women's game as well, we do a lot of work there with supporter groups. We are the umbrella organisation for all supporters' trusts. 
of which there are uh, around 40 or so that actually own um, at least half of their football club, including some in the football league. So we work closely with community clubs as well. Uh, we lobby all aspects of football. So some of the more sort of match day focused historic campaigns have been Stand Up for Choice, where we look for safe standing, as well as Twenties Plenty, where we look to limit the cost of away ticket pricing in the Premier League. We lobby around television and all the impact that television has, whether it be games that are rearranged um, late, um, fixtures being played at ridiculous times when fans can't travel, costs of travel having to be rearranged, all those areas we lobby on. We do lobby and work around perhaps more serious but also more boring governance reform type work of the way we believe that football needs to be improved to stop poor management of football clubs and questionable owners of which we still have some across the country well, what else do we do so we do quite we do quite a bit um, wide ranging yeah wide ranging uh, anything that might impact a football supporter whether they know it does or not is something that we are likely to tackle on their behalf we have a range of different memberships all of our membership is free by the way we have individual members. Anyone could just go onto the website and sign up to be an individual member. Uh, I think we've got about 60,000 of those. We then have supporter groups as our members. So we have two uh, areas there. We have affiliates, and affiliates are um, fully democratic organizations that produce accounts. So these typically are supporters' trusts or independent supporter associations that are constituted. And then we have a sort of more looser membership level called associates for all other supporter groups that it may even be a, a, a Facebook page or, or, or even a podcast, you know, um, you can join up as an associate member. And all of our members are able to influence the work we do and the, and the policy that we set and, and, and what we lobby on. And also, of course, use the services that we offer to support supporters. So we've, so we've got obviously uh, two, I guess, pretty well-known organisations or groups within Oldham Athletic Supporter Base. One is Trust Oldham, who would be therefore an affiliate. They are, yeah. Yeah, and Push the Boundary, who would be an associate. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the defining point between those is uh, the trust has a democratic election process and that's why they will be treated differently. And, what, and correct, what's, yeah. what's the difference in the membership what, in, in respect of how they can engage with you the only real difference um is firstly our agm if you're an affiliate you are entitled to five votes an associate is only entitled to one vote they have a bit of uh waiting in in voting um the other thing is the way that our um structure works is that we are we we have a national council who um effectively decide and set policy for the organization so Policy can be set at an AGM, but we also have a council that meets several times a year and they help set the direction of the organisation. National council members are elected from network representatives. So if we have, for example, a League One and League Two network, which Trust Oldham can be a part of as an affiliate, they would be entitled to put someone forward to stand to represent that network on the national council. So it's really part of the, the, the representation. But as far as the help we offer, um, all of the services we, we, we give, it doesn't matter whether you're an affiliate, an associate or an individual, we'll still help you out for nothing. Okay. So I, so I presume from the way you phrase that then, we can. No, nobody from Trust Oldham currently represents the League One and League Two 
council and within the not not currently no no is it i think we would on a previous podcast we discussed um, maybe a member of our trust philippa is uh somebody you might be aware of who's maybe is she doing some work with you as well is that is that the- yeah philippa's been very helpful so we have all sorts of streams of work happening all the time which we involve uh, members who've got appropriate skills we're currently i'm currently doing a piece of work with a lecturer at northumberland university around how clubs uh, report their finances on an annual basis and trying to make a proposal of how they could be more informative and more transparent about what yeah. they say. Philip has got uh, a very extensive background in uh, financial accounting and so is an obvious person to ask to help join the working group. So yeah, she's heavily involved in that area of work. Yeah, she's, uh, she's certainly reviewed our accounts from the trust perspective. I think she, come, she was a lecturer at Salford University, I believe. So she has, like you say, quite a quite an extensive background would you who who would you who would you hold in high regard as a good football club for publishing decent accounts out of interest as exciting as my job gets uh, <laughs> today i was looking at, at comparing two different sets of football club accounts for exactly that reason and one of them was oldham purely coincidentally and one of them was mk duns uh were not the most popular uh football club for other reasons around <laughs> yeah that's right yeah but their accounts are actually, from a football club perspective, pretty informative. They're not perfect. There's certain areas where we'd like to see more detail, but they do give a significant amount of information about the direction of the club, the risk that the club sees, details around its finances, its corporate structure, etc., uh, compared to Oldham's accounts, which are one of the worst that I've seen, if I'm absolutely honest. And, you know, there's very limited information it's the absolute bare minimum that is able to be provided. They're not audited and they could be far more transparent and forthcoming without giving anything away that might be considered business sensitive. And, you know, we, we very much believe that, of course, football clubs have owners and shareholders, but the supporters are so important to those clubs and the clubs are so important to their, those supporters that they deserve to understand the financial state of that club and, and and what their strategy and own intentions are of the of the club to move forward. Yeah, I know. We're, I mean, we agree entirely. We had also Kieran Maguire on a previous podcast episode just around the time that I think um, a set of our accounts had been republished and edited and he came on and gave us his professional view and he was equally as scathing as, as you've just been. Um, yeah, and Kieran's done a fantastic job of bringing that side of football to the masses because it isn't the most exciting part of football a lot of us just want to turn up at three o'clock on a saturday have a couple of beers with your friends and watch a game you don't really want to get into the detail of it but kieran and his podcast have sort of brought home the importance of that aspect to a much wider group of supporters yeah no he's he's, he's a good guy and he was it was a good good interview uh, with him good good episode with him so so uh, maybe i'll just go backtrack a little bit and touch upon some of the things you just talked about there so you talked about funding so uh, the fsa is, is well funded i think you said and what is the funding where does the funding come from if you don't mind asking so we are we are predominantly funded through football um, we do have some corporate sponsors our, our main corporate sponsor at the moment is gamble aware a lot of work with them to promote safe gambling, um, which is, of course, a concern around football. Not anti-gambling, just safe and sensible gambling. Uh, but then most of our money comes through football through, via the Football Foundation. And so, effectively, it's Premier League and FA money, uh, mostly. And, of course, some people you know, might wonder whether that means that we get sort of bullied to 
go in certain directions, but uh, actually we're left with quite a bit of freedom. And we're, we're regularly in um, discussions with the Premier League and the Football Association about exactly what we think they should be doing. And we don't always agree. And in my experience, we've never been told what we have to do. Although quite often we find areas that we agree on, uh, particularly with the Premier League at the moment, there's actually quite a lot that uh, a supporters organisation of the Premier League can agree on. Well, I noticed from looking at your website, um, I guess uh, sustain the game was was something that, uh, I guess, a bit like Project Big Picture is something that that would um, ring true or or ring interesting topics for lower league football fans. Is that is that something that you discuss with the Premier League and the FA and and other bodies that you can influence? Yeah, in fact, um, at the turn of the year, um, myself and a colleague uh, had a uh, four-way meeting with um, senior people from the Premier League, Football League and Football Association to push some of the uh, reform ideas that we have behind Sustain the Game. Um, That is the area that is the slowest progress whenever you're trying to work with football authorities. Um, Significant reform of governance is slow going. Um, But... Changes do happen. Uh, They tend to happen slowly in small steps. Trying to get the big bang approach, um, which we would like to see as part of sustaining the game, is not easy, which is why we also work closely with government, um, because government can can help make these things happen. And one of the the top level aims of sustaining the game is to have a, a regulator in football that is independent of the club owners. At the moment in the professional game, most of that authority is delegated to the Premier League and the Football League. We don't think that that's entirely correct. Mm. We think there needs to be somebody over and above that, taking a look at things, make, taking control of what clubs can and can't do, rather than those club owners voting for all the rules themselves. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more on that particular topic. It always, uh, you know, the, the, the gap... Uh, just like a reflection on society almost just widens more as time progresses and uh, it, it, it's really difficult without without sugar daddy money for any low league club to have any aspirations really of, of getting out of those bottom two divisions and being able to compete as the Premier League and Championship really just disappear in, into the stratosphere. How, how, did, how did you come to be involved in, you know, what was your personal story? How did you come to be involved in in the FSA, uh, I, I think I noted you, you were Chief Executive Supporters Direct prior to, to this. So, I actually got quite a different background from a work perspective. I used to work for sort of large IT business consultancies, so completely different to what I'm doing now. Uh, but uh, as a sort of fan activist, I was chairman of the Pompey Supporters Trust. Yeah. Um, clearly, that's the club that I support, and I happened to be doing that at a time that Pompey went into dire financial trouble, went into administration sort of two times in fairly short succession. And I was part of a a group that sort of led the charge to try and save the football club and ended up owning, being the majority um, shareholder in in the football club, or sorry, the largest shareholder in the football club, alongside a number of other Pompey fans. Ended up being a director of the football club for four and a bit years once we'd saved it. So what? So what years would they, these be? Would, would these be when you when you reached the the bottom division yeah. of the football league? Yeah, we took over on the last day of the season when we'd already been relegated to League Two. So we had uh, three seasons club in League Two, and then we got promoted. So I mean that you know that's a, an incredible story in itself. What happened at Portsmouth, but 
you know, it made me think that perhaps I could do with a bit of a career change. The role at Supporters Direct came up and I applied for it. I was lucky enough to get given the job and then moved forward um, a couple of years and we, we went into talks with the Football Supporters Federation to merge and create a sort of single unified uh, national organisation tackling everything for football fans. Uh, and that's how I ended up in my role at the FSA. So, so the FSA was a merger, therefore, of Supporters Direct and the Football Supporters Federation. What was the difference between Supporters Direct and the Football Supporters Federation then before the merger? There was quite a lot of grey area, uh, which is one of the reasons we merged, but there was also clear differences. So Supporters Direct uh, was the umbrella organisation for Supporters Trust and was very much focused on community club movement, um, the opportunity for fans to be shareholders or owners of their football club, and also worked around the major reform of football that we we believe needed to happen. The FSF tended to be focused more on real support of politics, such as the the ticket pricing, such as um, safe standing, match day type issues, so all of the problems that fans have around match days. You know, the more and more we carried on, we found that there's more grey area in between between the two organisations where we both thought it was an area that we should be working with. And we all got on well, we all knew each other. Um, There's no animosity between the the two groups. And so the idea was floated of a merger uh, and the members of both organisations voted to to approve that. And uh, we went through a period of bringing the two together. One of the challenges that one of the challenges that we've got is we've got split ownership. We've got our land and stand is owned by our former owners, and our football club is owned by a new owner. Our present owner is a former football agent, and arguably isn't the best governance of a football club, as you can see from the accounts that are published. What is it that, that that we can learn as a supporter base through either our trust or through Push the Boundary and maybe from your personal experiences clearly of working um, with Portsmouth Trust and ending up being a, a shareholder of Portsmouth, what, what, what advice would you give us in terms of things we could look out for or should do to try to affect positive change for our football club in the future? The first step should always be trying to communicate. If you can communicate and you can influence your club, um, then that's the best path to change and to improvement. Now, I know that you have an owner who is not the most communicative. You do now have a chief executive who I hope, and you mentioned earlier, he's been on, on your podcast, and I know that he's far more outgoing. He's meeting with Push the Boundaries, meeting with Trust Oldham. I think he understands, I've spoken to Carl a few times, understands the importance of supporters and what why supporter engagement is imperative for any club. Um, so hopefully that might be a trigger for some change. When you have an owner that, that doesn't want to engage, it's very difficult. And I think that um, something you see across the country and have done for a number of years that supporters groups have battled with is when do I become a protest group? You know, when do I, do I, am I a protest group? Do I want to march down the street with pitchforks and placards um, trying to get rid of my owner? Or do I want to try and influence in any way that I can to shape and improve uh, my football club? What, uh, what happened at Portsmouth? What, what, what was the trigger at Portsmouth? Did, did, did the owner just leave or did, did, you, did you guys force him to leave? Well, I can't say we exactly forced him to leave. 
but there were marches at Portsmouth. Um, it wasn't quite pitchforks, but there were placards. <laughs> And a lot of publicity um, was gained from around that. And I think that the most positive thing that comes out of protest typically is the publicity, as long as it's good publicity. As long as it's a well-managed protest and you've got the right message, it's the publicity you get from that to talk about the plight of your club that is often the main benefit, rather than the protest having any direct impact on the people you're protesting against. Yeah. In, in the end, the way that we got rid of the owner was purely from the, the, the act of administration. Um, things had gone completely wrong with our owner, our latest set of owners. I mean, our, the Pompey story is, is almost like a, a, a work of fiction. You know, some of it is unbelievable. And I, could... I, I remember, I can remember when you were in the Premier League, you having, uh, was it Guidermack was your owner for a while? Yeah. And then and then there was a, a litany of different owners who all yeah. uh, spent money that they didn't have and, and you ran up enormous debts and and, then, and that, that really yeah. what ended up with you plummeting down the leagues. You know, some, some of what happened at Portsmouth is pretty much a work of fiction, really. <laughs> uh, if you start with Guidermack, who himself, um, although not the friendliest of characters or the most football-oriented people, seemed to at least have some legitimate businesses, as opposed to his dad, who was accused of running guns and various other um, interesting artefacts around the world, and had his assets frozen by the French government. And it was shortly after that that the money seemed to stop flowing into the football club, coincidentally. That's when Gardamac looked to get out. Um, we, went, we then went through a series of owner switches which remarkably were to do with a, a few, connected to a feud that the Gardamac family had with two international money lenders uh, one Israeli and one um, Hong Kong Malay who uh, had a dispute that the Gardamac owed them £17 million and for some reason decided that a good way to try and get that back was to engineer getting Portsmouth Football Club off them um, and we went through a couple of intermediary People. One one guy who was supposedly representing rich Arabs, he did actually put five million pounds into the football club. That's shown in the accounts. But he owned it, the club, for about ten days. And several years later, we found out um, that he'd actually nicked that money out of his wife's bank account. Um, I think I remember that story. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then we had another owner who nobody quite knows whether he existed. He certainly never. Nobody ever met him, an operative for some of these other guys. That went back and forth for a period of time until we were sold supposedly to a Lithuanian guy who was supposed to be the saviour. Uh, this company was CSI Sports. They also did international rally and various other bits and pieces. There was a great sort of fanfare of, um, you know, I'm now going to invest in the club and we're going to climb the divisions and everything's going to be great. About three or four months after that announcement, there was an extradition order issued by the Lithuanian government who wanted him back in country for a multi-hundred million dollar bank fraud from one of the national banks, which he <laughs> owned. Over and, what course of time has this, has this happened? So to, to this point, um, you him up. So that, I'm giving you a really, really quick overview of the story because I, I could talk for hours on it. Yeah. That is probably over a two-year period. Right. And it's, that's only, it's not even a fraction of the story. Yeah, I bet. Um, so, so soon after that, the, the football club ended up in administration again. And that's when uh, we really sort of set about trying to find a way to save the club and wrestle it out of the hands of the various individuals that had uh, owned it in recent years. And, and that was the start of the 
the supporters trust story really um and we ended were you, up were you involved in the trust during that whole period yeah i was chairman of the trust yeah through that, through that whole whole time and so when you were watching your football club decline and being handed down amongst this this sort of passage of of, of nefarious characters did you were you agitating for change? Were you trying to have dialogue with them? Were you what, what, were you able to affect much, or were you just were you just observing? There's only so much you can do, really. A lot of it is you have to watch. Now there was um, there was another group called SOS Pompey um, who organised some marches. So we did have sort of proper people marching through the streets, placards type approach. The, what you really get from that is trying to bring focus onto your story make it a national story, get the press to write about it. It's very unlikely that you're going to have change of club ownership. Um, and I think the higher up the, the pyramid you get, the more difficult that is. And you really need an owner that's willing to not only leave, but you need somebody that's willing to buy as well. And I think that that is a, a common frustration that football fans have. You know, it's very difficult to have direct impact on change of ownership. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't raise awareness. It shouldn't mean that you shouldn't have a, have a voice, have a loud voice and have an opinion and try, but you have to be realistic in what's achievable. So you're, you're chairman of, uh, of Pompey's Trust and all of a sudden you find yourself in administration with an owner that's been uh, ejected from the country under an international arrest warrant. Uh, I mean, that must have been quite frightening, I guess. Or were, and were, were your trust, were you ready? Did you have the right people in your trust and were you ready to take on the club at that stage? Was it frightening? Well, as Pompey fans, we were pretty used to it, to be honest. <laughs> um, it was more a case of here we go again. We weren't really ready. As soon as we thought the club might go into another administration, we started to prepare. But we didn't really know what we were preparing for, in all honesty. We didn't sit there on day one and said, all right, we're going to buy the club, we're going to save it. The club was tens of millions of pounds in debt. There was a, a supposed administrator that wasn't even going to speak to us. So it seemed like an impossible task. So what we focused on is we wanted to raise awareness. We wanted to see if we could attract somebody to come and buy the club. And we wanted to build our own credibility within the trust so that when people did come, they wanted to speak to us and they wanted to engage with fans. But that started to evolve fairly quickly over time. We started to realise that perhaps somebody wasn't going to come and save the club and it might be down to us. And that's when we started to change tact and we started to talk about what we might be able to do directly to save the club and maybe even take it over as owners. And then did you have to, so did you have to fundraise in order to do that? Yeah, we did a, a multiple stage fundraise. We were quite lucky in, in as much as we had a significant amount of time that the administration period that Pompey was in was about 14 months in the end. What we did initially put out a call, what we call a pre-share offer, and we asked people to make a pledge to put £100 into our lawyer's escrow account as a commitment to buy a £1,000 share should we get to a position where we could take over the club. So this is really to sort of demonstrate that there was an interest there and show the administrator that we had access to money. At the same time as that, we put out a call to a richer, wealthier Pompey fans, a programme we call the Pompey Presidents, and tried to find people that were willing to put minimum sums of £50,000 in alongside the trust. Yeah. And we did find about a dozen of those. So that was the first round. That got us into the room. That's got us into discussions. But luckily, the administrator had, had, had been changed, and it was Trevor Birch in charge, who's now um, chief executive of the Football League. And Trevor was far more amiable and willing to listen to, to what we had to do and work with, work with us. 
and so he played a key part in uh, in making sure that this uh, this happened. You know, there was plenty more to do. We, alongside all of the fundraising, we had to fight a high court battle as well to wrestle Fratton Park um, from the previous owners. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. So when Portsmouth Football Club went into administration, was the ground included as part of that? Or were they separate companies or what, what was the makeup? Prior to the administration, we found out that the, the, the Lithuanian owners uh, had only ever actually bought the club on, on tick. So they'd never paid outright for it. And part of the deal was that the club would revert to the previous owners. They were still after this sort of £17 million that they believed they were owed by the Gardamax and trying to get back via Portsmouth Football Club. And they'd put a rather questionable fixed and floating charge of 17.4 million against Fratton Park. Um, so the administrator had control of the business, but not the main asset, Fratton Park. To release that, uh, they wanted us to pay them 17.4 million. We offered them two and three quarter million initially. Uh, went through a whole series of back and forths. Um, we arranged that to three million, and they still wouldn't accept it. And eventually, alongside the administrator, we went to the high courts uh, where there is a a rule that basically says if the administrator believes a fair value has been offered for an asset and the charge holder refuses to accept it, um, the High Court can basically order that asset to be released at the price that's offered. So that's how we got hold of Fratton Park. Presumably for a, let's call it for a sum of three million quid, you raised that purely from the pledge and from, um, from fundraising through the trust, right? Through our fundraising, from the presidents and through um, the supporters' trust, we raised about five and three-quarter million. That's amazing. But because of the way the deal was structured and because we cut, had to collect that money over time, we also had cash flow issues. So we had to take two loans, two short-term loans, to actually get the deal over the line. The local council lent us about a million and a half. And getting into another whole area of the story... We had to partner with a local developer for some land around Fratton Park, which wasn't actually owned by us, it was historically, but needed to work with us. And we had to borrow about a million and a quarter from him as well. Both of those loans were paid back in 12 months. Wow, just, just, just from then, from basically catching up with, with the pledge money. And I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing story. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, it's quite heartwarming to hear because... You may or may not know, you know, our ground is decoupled from our football club. Our ground is owned by the previous owners of the football club. Uh, the previous owners are redeveloping part of our land with, with houses, which historically was land of the club. We're in this, this awful position where if a day ever came again where administration loomed, my, my, my fear and concern is that an administrator wouldn't even be appointed. It would just go straight to a liquidator because the land is decoupled from the, from the club. It's heartwarming to hear because our trust in theory could could learn from that exercise and, and maybe replicate it for the benefit of, of the town of Oldham in the, in, in the future. Absolutely. The thing with administration of football clubs, they very rarely go straight into liquidation and the administration always tries to pass them off on a business. So that's a positive. On the negative side, administrators often seem to see football clubs' administrations as a cash cow that the administrator is looking for at Wigan currently. Absolutely, yeah. She's undoubtedly stopping possible new owners coming in to take over the club it's a whole new area to discuss but i think something has to be done about the, the fees that administrators can charge in football administrations yeah it, it all seems as though administration 
there seems to be hard assets associated to that football club. And, and, and our fear is that uh, Oldham Athletic 2004 Limited, which is our limited company, it has no assets at all because the assets are siphoned off into a different limited company. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's only real asset. The one asset of interest is its football league share. Yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the one reason the administrator will keep it alive and try to sell it as a going concern. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, again, heartwarming to hear. Um, so I get from from your experience then. How, how long did did you uh, or the trust uh, end up running Portsmouth Football Club for them before you eventually sold it again? So we were in charge for about four and a quarter years. Wow. And um, we completely rebuilt the club in that point. In that period it was in a real mess did you have to pay off a lot of debt at the same time did you inherit a lot of debt we had to pay off about eight or nine million of debt wow we were lucky enough in that the premier league still owed the club a bit of money so we did uh, receive a windfall of about eight million from them but we didn't you know the ground was in a mess we had no training ground we had virtually no players we had no full-time manager we had no kit deal we had no shop so no merchandise so it was you know it was almost like starting from scratch was a lot of hard work by um, the staff of the club in particular to rebuild the club. So much so that we attracted the interest of a pretty serious American businessman. Who's involved in Disney. Is that right? Or was involved? Yeah, in Michael Eisner was both chair and chief exec, joint chair and chief exec of the Disney Corporation for, I think, over 20 years. Which is a, an amazing story. And now, of course, you're one would say you're flourishing again at the top end of the third tier and probably soon be back in the championship, one hopes. Yeah, I hope so. I think a lot of Pompey fans would tell you we probably should have been in the championship two years ago. But um, yeah, we're not doing too bad this season. Hopefully this is our year. Well, it's a, it's, it's a great story and one we can definitely learn from. If I were to say, what were the things that you learned the most that through the benefit of hindsight you would say to another football club and its trust today, what would they be? So I think there are things that you can do to um, to prepare. And, you know, in fact, as the FSA, we, we give guidance to trusts on exactly how we believe they can prepare. So I think there is things you can do in advance and have an idea of what you are trying to achieve and build the relationships that will come in useful around the community, whether it be with council, local business, etc. Building that credibility in advance, I think, is, is really important. Also, you've got to believe in yourself one of the big problems that football fans always have in periods of crisis such as this is the lack of unity. It's quite bizarre that fans that all support the same team uh, seem to spend hours and end arguing with each other on social media. Oh, we, we, we feel that too, exactly yeah. the same. But what, 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 you need, what you have to do is somebody has to lead. Somebody really has to go out in front. Now, the trusts are the best vehicle to do that making sure you've got the right people involved in your trust and that you've got someone that can be a visible leader that people will follow is important. If fans don't unite, fans together are very powerful. They can achieve a lot. Absolutely, yeah. Each other's throats, bickering, nothing Doesn't there. Doesn't help. Yeah, agree. Sit and watch your club disappear. Well, you just said something else I'd just maybe like to finish off this, this sort of topic of conversation with is getting the right sorts of people in your trust. What, what, what range of skill sets do you think are necessary for a, a successful and functioning trust? It depends on the activity of the trust. But if you're talking about potential ownership, the subject that we just went through, yeah. having access to, it doesn't necessarily have to be on your board, but having access to good financial skills is important. Ideally, that should be on the board. Somebody with a, if not a lawyer, certainly with some sort of legal nous. I mean, yeah. you're, you're going to have to probably employ lawyers anyway, but still having somebody that 
understands that area, understands the law, is useful. You've got to have people that the fans believe in. At least one of those people has got to be visible, has got to be visible as a leader that people can unite behind. So that's a really a personality thing. You need somebody that understands comms, somebody that properly understands it from ideally from their J job and has skills in it. Yeah. Because communications is going to be really important. And it doesn't have to be the same person, but somebody also that's willing to go in front of the camera, somebody that is willing to go onto the radio, give the, tea, give, give the newspaper interviews. That yeah. could be your leader, it could be a comms person, but it could be a third person as a spokesperson. All of these things are going to are gonna help build it. You know, also people that understand your community and understand all areas of your fan base. So having a mix of representation, because as we talked about before, you want to unite the fans. So that means you have to have, might have to have some different types of people that can connect with different areas of the fan base. Yeah, I, I, that's a great, great advice. I think, uh, you know, obviously we, we talked uh, earlier about Philippa, who's on our, on our trust. So she's obviously got some uh, excellent skills in that arena. And we've got... Uh, some other people on our trust who also got interesting working backgrounds, but I suspect definitely around comms, uh, definitely around a spokesperson image is, is something we need to work on for, for our trust for sure. And what I should say is that, you know, everybody that, everybody that works for the supporters trust wherever around the country, they're volunteering. They're doing it because they love the club, want to improve it, want to make a difference. And all too often I see people getting targeted by um, fans normally on social media often anonymously for people that are actually just trying to do their best but equally you know this is where trust have to learn about communication because quite often they don't really communicate what they're doing with their fans and there's a disconnect there and it's trying to join everybody up together and understand what the aims are to to move forward as a group yeah i think i think some great advice in there yeah i agree with you i've met Personally, um, quite a few members of our trust, and like you say, they give up their time. Um, they're all passionate Oldham fans, and they do the best they can. But we definitely need to increase the skill base in in our trust. I think I think they recognise that too. Um, but some great great stuff. It's really enjoyable to hear that story. One one thing I've been dying to ask you because right from the very start, when I talked about what your title was, in your title is buried the words crisis club support. Um, and I haven't mentioned that yet, but I thought I might now. Who would you determine to be um, clubs in crisis currently? I guess you could say a lot. But... <laughs> right now, there's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, we have a little warning system that I keep internally, um, like a red, amber, green of football clubs. And you know, Oldham is certainly a club on our watch list. Yeah. Is it in crisis? Depends where when you know where, where where you flip over into crisis. If you look at somebody like Wigan, who's in administration, that still after after nine months, they're a crisis club, definitely. Oldham, definitely on the watch list. I mean, I guess with with under the pandemic currently, that list could be quite extensive. But I think we've definitely been referred to Oldham as a club in club in crisis long a long time before the pandemic took hold. So um, yeah, along with the likes of Berry and uh, Macclesfield and previously Bolton. And then there is, there is a, a saddening common thread that a lot of teams from the North finding it harder than necessarily than teams from the South uh, for whatever reason, I can't necessarily put my finger on it. Maybe because the South is, is more desirable place to invest money potentially in and around London for sure. Well, uh, I think, one of the things, Andy, is actually who, you, who you're competing with, you know. And if you look around, you know, Manchester and the teams that are on your doorstep that you've got to compete with to win fans, 
you know, that's clearly a, a big difference. Now, you know, my club, Portsmouth, okay, historically a great club. We've played in the top flight for, for quite a number of years. But, you know, in, in more recent times, it's been a bit leaner. But if you look, about the, look at the catchment area, um, now, remarkably, our three closest... Pretty big, isn't it? Hosts ...have all been in the Premier League more recently than us. But, you know, that's, that's not the norm. But to the north of us, you go all the way up to London for clubs. But if you look at who's on your doorstep, in Manchester alone, and just down the road, you've got Liverpool and you've got other clubs further up in the northwest. There's a lot of clubs to compete with. And, and football has changed in recent times, particularly and along with life and social media and sport coverage on TV. When I was growing up, you were far more likely to support your local team than perhaps you are now when you are inundated with social media from superstar Premier League footballers, Sky TV, FIFA games that you play on your PS4 or your Xbox or whatever. And so deciding to be um, a Portsmouth fan or an Oldham fan as a, as a nine or 10-year-old boy might not be quite as easy as it was a few decades ago. This is one of the reasons that you know, it frustrates the hell out of me with football clubs that, particularly low-level football clubs, that don't want to really engage with the whole of the fan base. You've got to work to find your fans and keep your fans these days. So don't shut, shut them away. Don't make policies which piss them off. Um, and this is a real frustration. You know, the, the club should be doing everything it possibly can. And the owner should be doing everything he possibly can to encourage people to not just become Oldham fans, but stick with being an Oldham fan. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, you know, like you, obviously, we're not, I wouldn't say Oldham historically is a, is, is probably less, obviously less successful than Portsmouth. You've won FA Cups, we haven't. Um, but, you know, for a long time, a long part of my life, we competed at a very similar level, Oldham and Portsmouth. Um, but yeah. there's, you know, your your potential now because of the, the your your recent history is much greater than ours is, is currently. You know, Oldham as a town has probably 200,000 people in it. It's a reasonably large, you know, uh, working class town. Of course, it's a stone throw from Manchester. So you've got a, a large percentage of Oldham supporting City or United. But it, it has potential if it had the right ownership with the right um, plan, I think. Um, and, and that really is, I guess, what all clubs are grappling with. I remember, you know, coming to Oldham quite often in the 80s, late 80s, when we were both competing in what we'd now call a championship. That's right. And you got promoted to um, to Division One, I, I think, beating us on goal difference or on points closely when Joe, Joe Royal was your manager. So yeah, you, you know, there was a couple of seasons when we went toe to toe. There was um, the, the very first year of the playoffs. You finished second, I think, uh, and we finished third. So historically, we'd have gone up, but we ended up in the playoffs and missed out. And then you nicked our top scorer off us at the end of that season. It was Mick Quinn. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's, there was plenty of. Uh, Plenty of, of to and fro in during, during those years. Yeah, I was uh, had some there's some very high scoring games against Portsmouth uh, at Boundary Park for a few years in a row. Who was the centre forward you had who came from the army and he scored a hat trick at Yeah, so you, it, there's some belting games in those days. In terms of one of the other topics, maybe to, to touch upon was fan owned clubs. I think you said earlier there was, there was about thirty or so. I had a, a quick recce myself. I believe there are only three football league clubs that have got fan ownership today which I think is Wimbledon, Exeter and Newport, are the only three after you, after Portsmouth sold, obviously, your, your share. And Wickham were recently sold as well. Wickham. Did they? Right. So Wickham were as well. Yeah. So there's obviously not, not many examples. 
when you, when you sold to Michael Eisner or, or the company um, that Michael Eisner holds, or however you made that, that that sale, did you was there any amount of regret, or did you put anything in place in that sale to ensure that you know history couldn't repeat itself, or were there any lessons to be learned there? You know, it went to a vote of the shareholders, and so the, the fans that had invested in the club made the the decision. That was the right thing to do. Was there any regret? I mean, for those of us that had given up significant chunk of our lives and been through a lot of pain or of course it sort of tugged on the heartstrings a little bit to sort of almost feel like you're giving it away again but equally we knew we were giving it to a much better owner than the type of owners that we had previously we did try to put in as much protection as possible it was some fairly tough negotiation we were limited in what we could get in but we did retain some veto over certain heritage rights um, and aspects of where the ground could move to and we continue to have a very good engagement model. Um, Michael Eisner has maintained the fan engagement model that, that we put in place. So we have a chief executive that is very supportive focused. Um, our owners, albeit not in the country very often, particularly now, do uh, attend supporters meetings and engage with the fan base. And as trust representatives, we're on something, we have representatives on something called the Heritage Advisory Board. Uh, which meets several times a year with the club's football board to discuss strategic aspects around the club. Hi, it's, it, again, you know, it's a good, it's a, it's a good, a good story of, of how to how to define it. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm speaking possibly out of turn because it's only my opinion, but I think there should be more fan ownership. You know, fans should should really um, try to take a share in in their clubs throughout the land, really. Um, so that the, you know, if you look at Wimbledon, Exeter, and Newport. They're all doing pretty well considering the size of their clubs and they've all got fan ownership. Wickham as well. We're doing well with fan ownership then. It, it, I don't think it's any coincidence. You know, you'd obviously turned it around at Portsmouth. I don't think it's any coincidence when fans are involved, uh, the clubs seem to do better. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd love to see more fan ownership. But I think, you know, we also have to sort of widen the sort of models that we're looking at. What we need is, you know, not necessarily supporters fully owning every club. That might not be possible, but... Having a, a supporter voice in the boardroom, ensuring that supporters have influence in the strategic direction of their club is important. So there's lots of ways that we can look to fight for more supporter influence. And that's one of the things that the FSA does. Yeah. And, and, and you talked earlier about, um, you know, trying to lobby, uh, being a lobbyist at the FSA and looking for sort of independent regulation, I guess. Those are some routes to that, possibly. Uh, I also saw on your website something mm-hmm. called the All-Party Parliamentary Football Supporters Group. So I presumably that's a group looking to work with politicians, I guess. We have our own um, APPG, so it's a collection of parliamentarians, collection of MPs and, and some lords and ladies, actually, cross-party, that all uh, are part of the group that have an interest in the activities of promoting football supporter. Um, rights and ideals and we we run the secretariat for that so we'll meet several times a year we take bring in different speakers make different presentations and each of those mps are typically there to support us in whenever we're doing our lobbying around government and you'll quite often hear them speak uh, in the commons in debates on football issues uh, when they've been briefed by us that's great um and i guess one final question on that is would you would you um, advise trying to engage with our local politicians? You know, we've got three members of parliament for, that represent the Oldham constituencies. Um, presumably, it would be a good idea to try and have a dialogue with them too. 
Yeah, definitely. This comes back to what we're saying about relationships and credibility. Um, they're really important links to, to make. I mean, certainly in, in the Portsmouth story, you know, one MP in particular was incredibly um, helpful to us for, through the whole campaign and has remained supportive. And, you know, she didn't have a football background, um, but once she understood what we were trying to do and the importance of the club to the city, um, she helped us in the fight. More lessons to be learned there. Well, um, it's, it's been brilliant speaking to you. I really appreciate you giving your time up. I think there's been some really interesting discursive points in there that we can take away and learn. For our listeners, if they want to know more about the FSA, what, what can they do? Google us, the FSA. Um, we're not the food standards agency. We're the one that is football related. So there's plenty of information on my website. It talks about all the different areas of work that we do and also provides you know the various contact points for people that you might want to speak to with the organisation on the different topics. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, maybe we'll speak again one day, actually. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me, Andy. So, Andy, get a good chat with Ashley from the SFA, Pompey fan. He's yeah. been through the mill with his yeah. club. He's had a real experience over... A long time, yeah. How did you find? How did you find your first interview, and and what did you get out of it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess for for me, one of the reasons that that we did this, didn't we? Is this? I guess dates back to our own trust interview, didn't? Isn't it just before Christmas? Our own trust, when uh, Jason and Paul came on, talked about the FSA in reasonably sort of glowing terms, and it's self-evident that our trust place a lot of emphasis on on the stuff that comes out of the FSA and to be honest with you you and I spoke we didn't really know a great deal about them um Steve put us in contact with Ashley and we had a chat to him so it was a bit of an enlightening experience and I'm assuming for a lot of just standard supporters probably won't know much about them either so hopefully it was an enlightening experience for them too but um it's interesting to hear what the FSA do from from the Premier League right down to sort of grassroots and the things have been involved in, like twenties plenty, you know, things like that that I, I probably I knew of, but I didn't realise it was the FSA. So it's quite interesting to hear hear those things. Well, obviously the, the the real meat of it, the really interesting stuff for an Oldham Athletic fan was listening to Ashley's personal experiences at, at, at Portsmouth. Um, I thought some of the things that some of the things that he shared with us were um, really interesting. He, he he was he was in a position of the trust. He was chairman of his trust actually at the point that Portsmouth were going through a litany of poor owners and to be in that position and to be able to interview him and have a chat to him, really, uh, I thought was was um, was really useful because some of those experiences we may we may well need at some stage in the future. Well, I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought that bit was really interesting because obviously he's a really good candidate for the, for the position that he's in because he's been through what he's been through. It's obviously why he got the job. What really struck me was the potential for under the model of our club and the way that Portsmouth was, you're basically at the mercy for whoever comes in. And obviously at Portsmouth, it was one after another, after another. And what freaked me out was not so much where we are now, which is, we all know where we are now. It's just, and it was almost like we wonder corny. It was like, who's going to come in and what's next. And, and that uncertainty and being at the mercy of whoever it is who comes along next. And, that's frightening. That is really, really frightening. And 
it should be a massive wake-up call. And now, look, I'm, I'm sure the trust they've spoke to Ashley. I know that push the boundary. They have a push the boundary, and 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 the trust are different types of members, like Ashley explained in the in the in the interview. So you know they're having those conversations with the SFA, and they're having these shared experiences with people from that have been through things with Portsmouth and other other clubs. So they, all this information and all these warnings should be at the forefront of the mind of those members of the trust. Uh, and of course, push, of course, push the boundary. And obviously what we hope to do with this podcast by having these people on is to put these warnings at the forefront of, of our fans' minds and our supporters' minds. Things might be a little bit more settled at the minute, seemingly, you know, on the surface at Boundary Park. But we have to be planning for a long-term stability of the club, don't we? And we're, as, we're always at the mercy of whoever comes in next. And if we are not solid and strong... And, and we don't do all the things that, that Ashley has blatantly just warned us about, then we could potentially be in that situation. So this is not about panicking about where we are at now. It's about trying to ensure these things don't happen in the future, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, he, he uh, Ashley would very clearly uh, describe, I guess, what we all know, which is, and what you've just described, which you're at the mercy of whoever's in charge of you. So like you said, this is, this is not really aimed at any individual um, we've got Abdallah in charge at the moment. It was the same under Corny in many ways. Um, who will be next? We don't know. So we, we do need to think about uh, how to prepare for, you know, a, a, an Armageddon time if it ever comes. I, I think the things that the things that really jumped out at me from that that I, that I didn't know prior to the interview is you often hear, don't you? Lots of people say in in, in when they're critiquing our own trust that the 3% shareholding is like a millstone around our, around our trust neck in that they are sort of caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, wanting to be this critical friend in inverted commas of the club, whilst also trying to represent the fan base, leaves in this unenviable position where, where they're, they're neither one nor the other. Well, actually, for me, that, that interview, that 3%, isn't probably isn't that valuable in terms of getting the, whoever the, owns the 97% to allow them access to the club particularly but it might just be might just be incredibly valuable if one day we we end up in administration because if we end up in administration again that 3% provides an open door to the administrator and and the other thing that that, that really was uh, surprising to me too is i've always assumed that if D-Day came again to us one day, because we no longer have any hard assets, because they're owned by Mr. Blitz and co, that we wouldn't even end up in administration. We'd end up in the hands of a liquidator. And actually, what Ashley taught me there was that so long as we are a member of the Football League, so long as we have the Football League golden share, it is highly, highly unlikely we would go straight to liquidation. So the two, those two things together, I think, are vitally important. And that so also just, pours a bit of uh, water on the people who say, oh, let's just go down to the National League and start again. <laughs> two, 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 those, those, exactly, those two things. The Football League share actually is, is more valuable than you realise, and the 3% shareholding might actually be more valuable than you realise. Yeah. So if, 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 for instance, whoever, whoever owns us decides, or, you know, in Portsmouth's case... 
the, the reason somebody left the, the sort of seat holding the club is because they had an inter, international arrest warrant uh, against them and, and they got shipped back to, uh, I think it was Latvia, he said. Who knows what would happen to us? You know, uh, Abdallah may sell the club to someone else in a few years and, and we may, may end up in, in a similar situation or, or indeed from our present owner. You've got to bear in mind, therefore, if we end up in, a, if we end up in administration, that 3% is going to be valuable. And, and then really, for me, it bring, comes back to, we, we really need to start, therefore, focusing some attention on our trust. Our trust is therefore important, isn't it? It's very important. And also, we need a bigger stake in the club because one of the other things that you touched upon are one of the things, you know, Portsmouth literally, Portsmouth fans literally took over their club. Stockport fans did the same. Literally took over their club yeah. and brought it back to life. Sorted out all the shit that all the dickheads that had pissed around with their football club, the pride and joy of their town, and left it in a, in a to use a, a, a maritime analogy, with it being Portsmouth, a shipwreck of a club. And they rebuilt it. And what did they rebuild? They rebuilt a stronger, better version of Portsmouth FC. One that became so attractive, it's now got a billionaire in charge of it. So it shows, like you mentioned in the interview, Exeter, Newport, Wimbledon. Wimbledon getting a brand new stadium. Above us in the league, having come from the non-league, Exeter and Newport, who are both, you look at tradition and I've got no right to be above us in the league, but they are. Ex- Wickham. Exeter, Exeter, Exeter and Newport both also dropped into non-league before coming back. Uh, Wickham as well, you're right, yeah. All, all of the all of these clubs that have had um, fan, fan part fan-owned clubs yeah. or fan-owned clubs are, are doing better. And, and that was something that, that was noticeable to me, yeah, for sure. So there's no... It's, this is not about us hitting a doomsday scenario necessarily. This work has to happen anyway. We have to look to build a better model where as fans, we're able to invest in the football club properly. We're not just seen as customers, we're investors. There's so many things that spin off this, Andy, that got, got my mind worried about Boundary Park, about the, the, you know, the land, the investment that we've put in as a collective, as a town, as a fan base over the years for that land to be almost held to ransom over us by an outside party because it's somewhere to build houses. It's just wrong. It's it's fundamentally, ethically, morally wrong. So there was the uh, situation in that interview about Fratton Park that, and, and the um, high courts being able to come in. Now, was what, and one of the things I was thinking, was that because it was in administration that they were able to intervene and set a price for that land? Was that... Was that um, because of the administration, as opposed to something that can happen outside of administration. Well, I, I, I guess I, I guess I failed to I failed to uncover that uncover that particular. Uh, it was a good question. Maybe, maybe if I if I could have my time again, I'd ask that question. Um, but well, my, maybe my insight, maybe we can my, find out. Maybe the trust because I know the trust have been looking into Boundary Park as a as a what do they call it community a, asset asset, of, asset, of, asset community, community value, value the yeah. ACV. Yeah. 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 So. But my understanding of the ACV is is basically the the, the local council um, say uh, you know nominate that land as as an asset of community value, <clears throat> and it gives the trust six months to raise the funds to purchase it if the if the owner of the land wishes to sell it for commercial gain. My my interpretation of the story from Port from Ashley's um, experience in Portsmouth was that the the, the I think the land uh, Fratton Park was was on a restricted covenant so it couldn't be used for anything else other than football i don't know whether that that relates to boundary park i'm, I'm not sure it entirely does and so therefore i think that was the thing possibly that that 
that, that made it, um, you know, an ombudsman of some description would have to rule what the price would be. But yeah, it is, it's an interesting, um, yeah. an interesting story just to see all that come through. I mean, the, the other thing that was fascinating, it, it blew me away. I, I think my, my reaction to it was to say the word wow, was when, when, when they went into administration and the trust, their trust, Portsmouth's trust, hadn't particularly raised any money at that point. They'd set up what was called a pledge. So to pledge some money in, in the irony, they raised five million quid yeah. in, in no time. And I just thought that was, an, all right, their fan base is probably uh, slightly larger than ours. Um, but Possibly you know. a little bit more affluent with, if you've ever been down onto that South Coast. Now, Portsmouth itself is, is, is you know, a bit rough and ready, you know what I mean? But like it's surrounded by, it's a, it's a very affluent area, catchment area. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, to raise, like you, like you said, that, that amount of money, was fantastic and the way that they did it as well i think they said that you pledge a you put a hundred up front but you pledge a thousand was it yeah you, you, you i think you could pledge you could pledge any amount you wanted um but it, it was it was just a matter of, it went into an escrow account so you, you you didn't you didn't actually you know you didn't lose that money if they didn't need it it was only there you pledged it in yeah. at the point that they needed it then you would then you would gift it and they obviously then looked looked also to some high sort of you know net worth or wealthy Portsmouth fans that they would network amongst. I mean, these are the things that these are things that our trust should be doing. Our trust should know from our fan base, in my opinion at least, who are the wealthy supporters? Who what wealthy fans have we got that they could call upon? And we're not talking about the wealthy supporters giving vast inordinate sums of money, but which supporters have we got that, that uh, amongst our fan base, famous or otherwise, that might be prepared to give slightly more than, than your average individual like you and I could afford to give, for instance? So that, that's the, those, these, these are things that the trust should be looking at. One hopes they are, and I suspect really this, this interview with, with Ashley, uh, as enlightening as it was in terms of the experience, we should really now, you know, well, once we enter into March, probably invite the trust back on. They came on in December, um, they were a new board at that point. Um, hopefully in the last three months, they've had time to focus their attentions on what their vision objectives are, the things that we, you know, that you touched upon in that interview. Um, and what are they going to try to, you know, what, what are they going to try to achieve over the coming 12, 18 months, two years, for instance? It'd be good to hear that, wouldn't it? Well, it will. It will. And, and we've got some interviews lined up with people who've been in senior positions in the trust in the next couple of weeks. So we, we're kind of guiding the conversation that way in terms of the, the content of the podcast. You know, we'll be looking back at people's experiences of the trust and kind of building up a bit of a picture of how it's got to where it is. And then we'll be able to, like you say, talk to the trust about where it's at and, and what the plan is in the in the near future or the near to long-term future. Because again, one of the things that Artie said, division is it's just going to, it's only going to end one way. We need to all come together. We need to back the trust, but we need to do that in good faith. The trust need to give us the confidence in them that we, because I want to, I'm a member of the trust. I know that you're not anymore. A lot of people listen to this, the majority of people listening to this won't be. They've got a lot of work to do. Interviews with Harry Kuehl will not address any of the issues that we've just discussed. I'm sure the motives for doing it are honourable but it's not really what the trust is for and and, and the club should be organising a, a Q&A with Harry Trust for the fans that's something the club should be doing. there's all these things right this is just about prioritising things and everyone getting on with what they're supposed to be getting on with there were some really critical things in there that Ashley said about communication from from the owners of the club 
about the club taking seriously the fans and, and the investment that the fans make. I think one of the things that's happened this week is the season ticket price release. That, to me, suggests that the, that the club, and I suspect it's Carl who's worked this, has re- seriously reflected what's gone on over the last couple of years in the price of the season tickets, and that's got very good feedback on, on uh, social media, so I think they deserve credit for that. It's a step in the right direction. It's certainly not the finished article in terms of making sure that the fans are treated properly, but it's definitely a good thing. And the other thing was about the trust and leadership and personality and spokespeople and all that kind of thing. So what we've got here is we've got a football club and its trust who both lack that charisma, leadership and ability to motivate and engage the people that they need to. And that's why there's this vacuum. And, and I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm not saying you should have a better personality. You should be more engaging. You should be more charismatic. I'm just saying they've, that's for them to figure out, isn't it? That's for them to, oh, to, to call upon who, whoever they feel they need to call upon, yeah. get involved and be that sports person, that person to engage. I, th- I think you're right. I've seen the the, the, the season ticket announcement uh, on face value looks looks an excellent one, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, you know, the, 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 the prices are... Um, you know, 160 pounds uh, for an adult season ticket, uh, rising to only 180 before the 7th of May. And even if you're, uh, even if you're a new season ticket, it still only works out at uh, 10 quid a game. I think, I think it's brilliant. brilliant. I, to be honest with you, I, I was surprised the club didn't go with 125 quid for the 125th year. That was a bit of a four par. They should have done. Yeah, not that I, anyone it, would have been able to watch a game. Well, no, but, <laughs> but it, it was a nice, but, would have been a nice gesture. Yeah. I guess, I guess the other, the, the other, the other point to note is the other. You know, I, I definitely congratulate the club for those prices, and I think, and one hopes that Carl. You know, you're talking about people. Carl's definitely got charisma, and Carl is is able to communicate for sure. So uh, I'm making assumption that he's having a positive effect on things there, and, and he should be given credit for that. I, I guess a bit like um, you know Jamie Jamie Stoddo's uh, uh, commercial update from a week before was was also you know um, I thought well written update um, gave some some. Some detail to a good communication piece. So there's two recent communications that I think probably you could give them credit for. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and and yeah, the, the, the concerns you have over announcement announcement the season ticket prices in in uh, mid early mid February is what does that indicate? How desperate the club are for cash? I guess all clubs are desperate for cash at the moment. I don't know. I don't really know how many other League One and League Two clubs have announced their 21, 22 season ticket prices yet, and and how 160, 280 pounds compares. Whether that's that's good, average, or indifferent. Um, so yeah, I guess you 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 might want to be concerned about that a little bit. But yeah, on face value, I think that's I think that's great. I, but you're right that the 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 trust need to find people who can communicate on their behalf for sure and and that's if there is something to communicate about <laughs> that's 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 why i was just thinking then it's about what they're communicating communicating the right things that are, and and getting that message on point what are they trying to achieve what what not what are they trying to achieve what are they going to achieve in terms of being an absolute leader in securing the safety and the long-term future of Auden Athletic. And like you said in the interview, aren't they? Bringing in the politicians, we're going to, we're sending out invites. We want the politicians to come on this, on this podcast. Everybody needs to, we need to, we can almost even just sat, sit around a big vis- virtual table, but we need to get everybody around the table, all the stakeholders, because it's always the same. When the club is really in crisis, you alluded to it in the interview, the definition of crisis, you know, is it when you get to Wigan, 
or is it when you're on the verge of being the Wigan? I'd say until the club is safe and secure, it's in crisis or it's potentially it's on the edge and that's enough. But it's always the same when you get to Wigan stage, oh, the club is such an important part of the town, blah, blah. That needs to be, it needs to be up at the top of the agenda in, in, in terms of the council and the, the town planning. And, and the two things go hand in hand. It's just so important to the town. It really is. I mean, how many, I always get a bit romantic about the fact that I was born literally a stone's throw from Boundary Park. I, I think that's fantastic. I think in this 125th year, even if the club would have offered something to babies born in this year or something like that, a little, you don't have to take it because not everyone would want it. But the fact that you can be born so close to, to, to the club that you go on to support is, is amazing. And I just, I do get kind of romantic about it, but I don't think there's that many other clubs that you can, that you can say you can do that. And it's, and it's, the club is so important to the town and the town is so important to the club and we need to get that back. The disconnect can, we can't, we can't allow it to continue and we need to get everybody around the table, the trust, the club, the council, the people, and let's work it all out. Let's, 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 cause you know, the economy, I've got loads of, I've got loads. I can't like, I've got loads of thoughts. I'm my head's buzzing all the time with all this and I can't, I've got to work it all out and I've got to write it all down and, and do what I need to do. But I think that the that the wheels are turning in the right direction. But we can't wait until the wolf's at the door. We've got to keep the wolf from the door. And I, it's just every time I hear an interview like that, it's just kind of like ding, ding, ding. And it was really good, Andy. I thought, yeah, I thought, you, I, you, you know, you, you obviously went into it very well prepared and you knew what you wanted to, to get out of him. And it just makes me all the more kind of realize the urgency i don't want us to lose the urgency of how important it is now and that's what i hope regular listeners to this podcast will understand what we're trying to do we're trying to force the narrative we're trying to force the dialogue we need to make sure that all the plans are in place we need to get onto simon blitz we need him to sell us the land back we need the council to ensure that this football club is going to be safe in this town we need to ensure that i've done maybe we need to start working a lot more closely with abdallah and we need to look, mate, we need to figure this out. Olive branch, we need to, all this needs to be sorted. There's no point squabbling. There's no point pointing fingers. He said, she said, we've got to work it out. We've got to get it sorted because that's the message coming back in it from the SFA, from Portsmouth, from Stockport, from Leighton Orient. We've had them all on. Let's not wait till the shit hits the fan. Let's get it sorted. Boundary Park Alert System is a Studio 6 production. It's hosted, edited and mixed by me, Matt Dean, and you can contact me on Twitter at DublinOAFC. If you'd like to get in touch with us or contribute to the show, our email is bpalertsystem at gmail.com and we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at OAFC Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Push the Boundary, you can visit pushtheboundary.co.uk and follow them on Twitter at ptb underscore OAFC. The title music for the show is Delirio by Manchester DJ and producer Starion. You can visit redlaserrecords.bandcamp.com for more info and the latest releases. If you like the show, please do review and subscribe on whichever platform you listen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>